2: To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Hello, listeners. Since you can't come to the London Review Bookshop at the moment to enjoy our events, we're bringing them to you at home. While we're closed, our new podcast episodes will feature guests who you might, under better circumstances, have been listening to live in Berry Place, as well as previously unreleased gems from our archives.
3: Right, my name's Anne Pespoor and I'm really honoured to be here with Nancy Fraser this afternoon uh, um, to promote her book and her book is here uh, with Rahel Yegi um, It's a wonderful book and um, I know you're all here and I'm, we're both of us saying how wonderful it is that so many people on a Friday, hot sunny Friday evening uh, have come to listen to a discussion effectively about capitalism and... Um, we're just really proud to see you all here and to see so many young people here, too. Yeah. So I want to begin by asking Nancy to tell us why you and Rahel felt that you had to write a book that was a conversation. And just tell us a little bit about what the motivation was behind the book and what got yeah. you to write it. Great. Great. Um,
4: it it is the format is quite unusual. It's uh it truly is a dialogue and, and if you open the book you will see in bold letters Fraser blah 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 blah. blah 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 blah. And it, it goes back and forth in this way. Uh I I maybe we were channeling Plato, I don't know, but uh um it, it it, it like many books it was sort of serendipitous that we chose this format i mean one person who has bears a lot of responsibility is john thompson sitting right there from polity press who has a series called Con- uh, conversations and at a certain point john approached me and said let's do one of these things on you and let's find a, a conversation partner and I thought of Rahel immediately, but but I said, but it, I don't want to do it on me. I want to do it as a conversation with two equals about a problem that we are both passionately interested in. Well, what other problem besides capitalism today uh, could fit that bill? And, and then Rahel is the perfect dialogue partner for me, and I think the results bear it out uh, because... Um, we both come out of a certain uh, philosophical tradition of critical theory, and we can say more about that later. Um, And so we share a lot of common reference points, starting with Marx, of course, and then with a whole set of later (laughs) Marxists and revisers of Marx and critics of Marx. Um, But we don't have exactly the same approach, we share enough to know where the other's weak points are, and we were not afraid to push them, so to speak. So it's an actually a very probing conversation between two friends and, uh, uh, I kind of feel it's you know the the most, um, m- m- most exciting thing I've done uh, right. actually, uh, so
3: And did it give I'm you happy. the chance to say things and explore things in a way that you wouldn't have done if you were writing a book you know beginning to end and thinking the beginning, the middle, and the end? because a- it absolutely. takes you
4: off in different directions. Absolutely. there's nothing like a partner, an, an interlocutor. To say, but, but, but. Yeah. And then you have to answer. Yeah, yeah. And that's how the best thinking happens when you're really forced to get outside of your own head and see it from somebody else's point of view. So I was pushed in um, to go more deeply into certain kinds of questions that are a little uh, more uh, in the background for me normally. Uh, and I think the same was true for, for Rahel. So the sum, the whole is more than the sum of the two parts, definitely.
3: So, Nancy, I want you to help me. I'm not an academic, and I know very little about critical theory. Yeah. Um, and I got to this bit where, it, where, where Yegi says, could one say that from both sides liberal Kantian normativism And the post-structuralist critique of normativity, we now find a situation in which the unity of the analysis and critique has fallen apart. And I had some difficulty (laughs) understanding (laughs) that. I see why. (laughs) So the the question I want to put to you is, can you tell us something about critical theory and the evolution of it? Because I gather from the book that you're arguing with other critical theorists, and also with the way in which the field has evolved. So I want you to tell us something about that, especially for me as someone who is so out of that world. Absolutely, and I just want to
4: say to the audience that I don't think that sentence is representative.
1: (laughs) <laughs> so you're don't right. get scared <laughs> off.
4: <laughs> no, um, so I mean, look. There's a broad, a narrow sense and a broad sense of critical theory. The, the narrow sense is the Frankfurt School for social research, which developed in the late 20s and 1930s in Germany. Was you know uh, uh, destroyed in a sense, or forced to emigrate uh, by uh, due to fascism, and it tried to reconstitute itself in Germany again after the Second World War. And it, the, the names that you would know are Herbert Marcuse, Theodor Adorno, uh, Max Horkheimer, um, uh, Friedrich Pollock. Um, more recently, Jürgen Habermas would have been considered yes. the representative <clears throat> figure. But the, there's also a current generation that includes Axel Honneth, with whom I, I co-authored a previous book, uh, Shayla Ben-Habib, Reiner Force, and many uh, still younger people, including Rahel Yegi, would be considered an absolute uh, stellar leading light today. Th- this is a tradition that um, was founded around the idea of interdisciplinary social research. And I have to say that that phrase was sometimes uh, a kind of uh, esoteric, a key word for not saying Marxism yeah interdisciplinary. <laughs> they didn't, didn't want to always call themselves Marxists, but it was a so-called Western Marxism as they called it meaning anti-Stalinist anti Soviet and um, they had a great interest in political economy in culture in uh, the psychology of the family and authoritarianism um, and uh, it, it was quite an, a really interesting um, group of, of rather brilliant people who tried to do something to develop a broader form of Marxism, to analyze the society of their time, which they called state capitalism.
3: Right. <clears throat> so
4: fast forward now to, um, you know, let's say the 1980s, 90s, the 2000s, um Then you have a whole influx of a new generation of new leftists, of which I am one, 68ers, who were formed, you know, in a time uh, of uh, tremendous ferment and and interest in Marxism, again, not a a Soviet kind of Marxism, uh, looking to integrate culture, psychology, and so on, uh, but then you have this sort of unfolding mm. that I think we're still struggling with today of the sort of, of waning of those energies, those, that radical spirit, and the sort of slow creeping colonization by liberalism. And the reference that you read to Kantian liberal normative theory is that is the form that that creeping liberalism uh-huh. took yeah. in the world of critical theory? And I have to say, as much as I admire him, the late thought of Jurgen Habermas was mm. the sort of entry point for this. Yeah, yeah. Definitely. Mm. So um, basically, what you got, what you have had, I think things are changing now. But what you have had is a world, a, a, a sort of intellectual. Circle that pays certain lip service to the, idea, the ideals of Frankfurt School, interdisciplinary, quasi Marxian, or you know, since, uh, uh, in, inquiry that is actually more and more doing what I call freestanding moral and political and legal philosophy, as if you could talk about morality, politics, and law without talking about capitalism without talking about the economy, without talking about the institutional structure of society, about the uh, mechanisms through which relations of domination uh, are entrenched. So we're up here like Kant, what ought to be, what does a good society look like, what is a just world, and so on and so forth. And that's the sort of frustration that the passage you read, which, however stylistically awkward, is actually trying to say something important. And it's trying to say that it's one side of the story is this creeping liberalism. Yeah. The other side is the post... The other reference was to post-structuralist anti-normativism. And this this is a reference to a French version of critical theory. So it's Foucault, it's Derrida, it's... um, it's Leotard. it's uh, in a certain way Jacques Lacan. It, it, it's a group of people who are um, also very brilliant and extremely interesting thinkers, but who got the idea that, um, you know, that sort of m- the, the normative perspective, the, m- the moral critique of society was essentially useless. Mm. And so here you have two equal and opposite ideas. One is that morality is everything and can be done from on high, and the other is that it's some kind of a ruse. What is left out of this picture? Can I tell you in two words? Left Hegelianism, which is the idea that the 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 people's moral indignation about living in the kind of world we live in yeah. actually comes out of a historically situated experience and when developed can actually point beyond it to a better world. That's a third mm. position in between anti-normativism and liberal yeah. freestanding. Right.
3: right. Okay. <clears throat> and that's what I like very much about this conversation, because I would, of course, as an economist, is that, that there's so much of what I read on the left which has left out the economy, right. which has left out, and we'll come to the finance sector in a minute, yeah. but the, the finance sector is the thing for which they have the biggest blind spot, but it's as if the economy doesn't exist, and people people go about things outside of the economy somehow, yeah. Yeah. and that happens with history, it seems to me, I read history books, which written as if there is no, there is no economy at the time, yeah. when, when that history is of which that history is being written. So I like very much that you began to explore that with with Rahel. Mm-hmm. And tell us a bit more about where you think that takes us. I mean, do we think that critical theory today is including the economy? And it seems to me it's also part of a wider political thing where where, where liberalism and ultimately the thing that I will call globalization managed to talk about globalization as if, again, there wasn't... Uh, financialization, and there wasn't an economic... It was about traveling abroad. It was about <laughs> networking. It was about the Internet. It was about all of those wonderful yes. things, yeah. but it wasn't about the financialization of the economy. Yeah. So could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I, I, would, I want to approach that question
4: from two different sides because um, I think you're absolutely right that there has been a period of sort of social amnesia or the repression of the critique of political economy. Repression is the word. Within yeah. critical theory, for sure. Mm. I mean, I can't tell you the, the puzzled, weird looks I got when I started saying, talking about capitalism. <laughs> and people said, oh, she's become some kind of a vulgar, blah, blah, blah. You know, you, you can't, as if you can't talk about capitalism except in a vulgar way. Um, so, all, so in in intellectual circles, yes. And again, liberalism, post-structuralism, that was a one-two punch that eviscerated the critique of political economy, Yeah. right? They shared that. Um, but also, one should talk um, really about the period in which the new social movements unfolded in the real world, as we call it, um, and uh the the sort of yeah the 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 kind of in what I used to call the increasing focus on the politics of recognition yes. and ignoring um, the what was sort of going on beneath the surface, which was exactly the neoliberalization and financialization of the economy mm. in a way that uh, really destroyed the whole. Presumed social democratic basis from which social movements thought they could go on to further democratization. Big surprise when we, you know, see where that has gotten us. So that's one side of the picture. Social amnesia of the, I would say, the critique of political economy. Hmm. Now the other side is some is something else. And the, the, the what I mean by the other side is that those stalwarts who continued to do the critique of political economy did it in an economistic way. Yeah. And um, in, in other words, they really um, tended to reduce capitalism to the narrow idea of an economic system. The, the most important um, claim and argument in this book and it comes in different ways from each of us, is that capitalism is not an economy. It is something much bigger. Think of it as something that would be as big as, say, feudalism. It's not about one sector of society. It's about how all the different sectors fit together. And that means that if you want to talk about capitalism, you can't talk about production without talking about social reproduction, something feminists have known for many decades. You can't talk about economy without talking about the political order that shapes and channels and supports the economy. You can't talk about, um, about any of these things without talking about Nature about the socio ecological economic relations mm. so what we're tr- we're doing here is trying to uh, you know break up the association that capitalism is simply an economy in the narrow sense but that has nothing to do with the idea that we stop talking about the economy it's that we talk about it differently mm-hmm. in in its relations with these other areas of society
3: yeah now I think I think that's really important and I was very pleased to see that in here. Um so when we were discussing beforehand Nancy we talked about the fact that well I have a, a problem with the term capitalism mm. because I believe that that what's happened to capitalism is it's involved into another thing mm. and I'm a little bit one-dimensional about it because and I like the fact that you're saying yes it's it's about the whole thing is now in my view, financialized. So we now have a financialized capitalism which no longer bothers with the business of production, uh, which is not bothered to invest or to employ labor or to produce products. Mm -hmm. That's yesterday's story, in my view. Mm -hmm. Today, all that capitalists want to do is to use existing capital and new finance created by central banks or by other means with which to extract assets from the earth, mm-hmm. from labor, and from from yeah. the economy. So we now live in what I think of as a financialized and extractive capitalism, right. which is so different. And for me, the difference is this. The old-fashioned capitalist would invest, hire labor, produce, and make a profit. And profits were volatile and would go up and down. Mm. Nowadays, the idea of, Dirting one's hands Mm -hmm. by investing, employing, and so on is is anathema. And instead, capitalists want to make capital gains effortlessly Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. from renting. And so we live in a rentier economy. And I think what's so profound about what you're saying is that it's not just a class that's engaged in this rentier economy. We all are, you know. Mm -hmm. We rent our music. We rent our software. we, We rent our... Taxi rides, you know, we rent out our, our homes mm. and they rent, they rent out everything else. And so, you know, we're in a rentier economy, right. but it's embracing the whole of civilization. It's not just mm. one class. So I would yeah. like you to, to, to come back because you've called the book capitalism. Yes,
4: yes, yes. Well, uh, I certainly uh, want to defend that term. And so I would, um, suggests that we actually, in fact, one of the chapters of the book is called Historicizing Capitalism. The book has four main chapters, Conceptualizing Capitalism, Historicizing Capitalism, Criticizing Capitalism, and Contesting Capitalism. Historicizing is very important because you're right. what, What capitalism is, is not something that's just somehow given once and for all, and that's it. It actually undergoes um, some pretty incredible transformations. If I mean, I don't want to personify it, but, but it's, you're tempted to say things like it's very wily; it, kept, it keeps reinventing itself, and so on. And in response to what? In response to its own dysfunctionalities and crises. Yeah. Uh, I would say that the history of capitalism is the unfolding of a series of different forms of capitalism or different regimes of capitalism, each one of which finds, at least for a period, a way of provisionally stabilizing some of its inherent contradictions and tendencies to generate trouble. And at a certain point, the stabilizations don't hold anymore. The thing unravels There's a period of crisis. All sorts of interesting things happen politically, not necessarily all good by any means, and competing, right, projects, competing forces with competing agendas, uh, uh, fight it out in in order to see kind of what is the successor form Mm -hmm. gonna look like. Mm -hmm. So I think we could talk about the transition from mercantile capitalism in the 16th, 17th, 18th century to a kind of 19th century industrial capitalism to a state-managed or social democratic capitalism, and then finally to the capitalism you've described, uh, Hmm. which I I would absolutely call, and we do call, financialized capitalism. Hmm. So that's one thing. Um, But I want to also make a second point, and that is that... um, I'm not in full uh, agreement with your description of financialized capitalism. Um, I would say uh, it's not that, that production has uh, disappeared, but the geography of financialized capitalism is very different from the geography of those previous capitalism. A huge amount of manufacturing is now located in the global south in the so-called BRICS. Those, that, those parts of the world used to be let's say the hunting grounds for exactly the sort of extractivism and expropriation that you're describing, they were just places to be looted yeah. for a dependent coerced labor, for land, for mineral wealth, for you name it. So the, the form that capitalism took there was not premised so much on the exploitation of free labor power, yeah. as on the expropriation of unfree and dependent populations who lacked a state to protect them. Mm. Okay, We're talking, after all, about colonialism and so on, uh, and even post-colonial forms of neo-imperial etc. Yeah, right. Okay, today what's, what I, I would describe financialized capitalism today as sort of scrambling what used to be a, a, a sharper distinction Between exploitation and expropriation. It used to be that expropriation was over there, and that was something that you did to people of color, basically. Right. Exploitation of the free worker who's for whom, who receives the socially necessary costs of his and maybe even his family's own reproduction, those are, that's whites, those are Europeans, that's over here. Well, these two worlds are completely scrambled now. Yeah. Uh, There's plenty of exploitation over there, and there's plenty of expropriation over here. Yeah. And even the the color line that used to divide these things is mixed up. Right. As workers in the global north, supposedly free workers are often not paid the full socially necessary costs of their reproduction. They are forced to go into debt yeah, yeah. in order to meet their present-day living costs. Yes. So we have student debt, we have payday loans, we have uh, credit cards, we have mortgage, uh, uh, micro-credit. I mean, all of this uh, proliferation of just even consumer debt without even talking about yeah. sovereign debt. Yeah. Um, and that's part of the scrambling you can be exploited and expropriated at the same time. Yeah, and al- almost most of us actually are. That strikes me as historically new. It's not that production disappears, but it it's it's done by others. And
3: uh, but Nancy, uh, I would like to argue that it's a small part of the mm-hmm. total of the capital gains made by today's capitalists. Uh-huh. But I may be yeah. wrong because I, mm-hmm. to be honest, I haven't added it all up. But But when I look at BlackRock, for example, which has $6 trillion under asset management and operates beyond the reach of any government or state, any regulatory body, and operates out there in the stratosphere, but very much with the help of the global central banks, um, you know, they don't anywhere... I mean, and go near, they, they, they soak up and they suck up the savings and the surpluses right. of all those engaged in productive activity. Right. But they go, you know, so, and make huge gains, unlike, you know, well beyond the gains that can sure. be made from production. So I think that's right. I, I, I mean, again, we,
4: we would want to see the numbers here. Yeah. And I don't have them. But um, it, it's certainly um, my impression. I mean, I would say that one, look, there are lots of things that distinguish different phases of capitalism, but one thing is exactly what is the relation between exploitation and expropriation. I spoke about the geographical relation, but we could also talk about what are the quantities, uh, right? Yeah. Where is the, you know, which is serving which, so to speak. Yeah. And um, that, um, I mean, I think you could say that for mercantile capitalism, the profit streams that came from direct uh, exploitation of labor in commodity production were pretty small compared to the streams that came out of just looting and enslaving people yeah, no, and so right. on, right? Yeah. So the ratios um, were pretty the, much right. the same. But to, and, and then in the, certainly in the social democratic capitalism, <laughs> well, the part of the problem is if we, we're so used to looking only mm. at the first world or what we could yeah, call yeah. the global north Instead of seeing this as a world system, um, uh, once you take the global perspective, yeah, which is not the same as globalization in the sense no, no, you refer course. to. But once you take a global perspective, I think you are struck by how much of capitalism has not depended on em- employing free labor in commodity production. How much of it has... Uh, relied, and then let's also talk about the unwaged work of women and social reproduction, which is another part of yes. this uh, business. I, I would say that again. I don't capitalism as a as a form of social life. No, let let me start over. Let's talk not about capitalism. Let's talk about capital. Capital as a what Marx famously called a a, a machine for self expanding value. Capital is um, always um, aimed at self-maximization and which means a constant impulse to free ride on inputs that you don't have to pay for or that you don't have to pay the full replacement costs of. And that's nature, that's what the ecological crisis is all about, that's social reproduction and what the so-called crisis of care is all about. And that's, um, you know, the, also the, the sort of uh, free riding on public goods yes. and public infrastructure and the, and the hollowing out of the state yeah, yeah. by financialized capitalism.
3: Look, we said that we were going oh, to God. allow the audience loads of time to ask questions. And we have But no, we haven't. And now I want to ask you just one more thing okay. before okay. we do allow them. Okay. I want to ask you about the left and yeah. the left's collusion yeah. with the development of this new capitalism. Yeah. um because that is a huge problem that we face here social democracy has collapsed across europe now yeah. and it has collapsed in my view because of its collusion with the neoliberal globalization project and here we're in a struggle against the blairites uh, of the labor party who similarly colluded in that in that in globalization and don't understand why we have brexit and why we have Corbyn, um, right. but we have Corbyn in a sense as a reaction against that. But I know that you, you know, in the in the US, the Democrats are split, and I'd love to just hear what you think yeah. about that before we open it up yeah. a bit further. Yeah,
4: it's
3: a great question. I just have to.
4: Quibble with your use of the word the left because I don't. Social democracy hasn't been left for a very long time, in my opinion. Oh. Maybe we differ about that. No, no, okay. we don't. We don't. You're right. Okay. You're right. <laughs> okay. Um, So, I mean, the the term that I've given for this collusion might be useful. I I know it's useful in the U.S., and I think it's useful here, too. I've called it progressive neoliberalism. And this is a kind of really uh, unholy alliance between just those dynamic sectors of finance, capital, IT, the kind of post-material symbolic part of the economy that is cosmopolitan, that is interested in globalization and so on, uh, in an alliance with what I think of as the liberal mainstream currents of progressive social movements. Lean-in feminism, meritocratic anti-racism, green capitalism, multiculturalism, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that's what Blairism was here. And I think that's what Clintonism, and then continued by Barack Obama, uh, has been in the United States. And we could talk about Francois Hollande, and, and on and on and on. Yeah. Um, uh, I was even in India recently, and and uh, the, the late days of the Congress Party are exactly that as mm-hmm. well. Yeah. So um, that's that's been the sort of hegemonic. Uh, historic block in Gramsci's sense that has ruled the, yeah. the world or, or major parts of it in recent decades. And, you know, it frankly, it's surprising that it took so long for, you know, yeah. there to be the reaction that we're now uh, struggling to understand and to, to figure out uh, how to intervene in Brexit, in Trump, yeah, uh, and uh, and so on—the strong showing of all these racist, anti-immigrant parties yeah. throughout northern and uh, east-central Europe. Yeah. Um, so I think this is a complicated thing. It's a response on the one hand to the hollowing out of living standards by the thirty years of uh, neoliberalization and financialization that you're talking about, but it's also a rejection of the apparently progressive ideas, the cosmopolitan ethos, uh, the sense of meritocratic superiority and so on, that has been somehow fused with this political economy by this unholy progressive neoliberal alliance. Mm. And if you sort of turn both of those things on their heads and you say, I'm against uh, the neoliberalism and I'm against the progressivism. What do you get? Yeah. Da reactionary populism. Mm. It's the exact inverse of that. Mm. And um, so we could go on and on about uh, Trump and and, and 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 so on. And the left. Okay, the left. Um, I don't know. What about you know trying to sort of take those? We've got like four things. We've got neoliberalization. We've got uh, some kind of really uh, egalitarian progressive political economy we've got reactionary recognition we've got progressive recognition let's try to put together a a substantively egalitarian class sensitive politics of recognition with a uh yeah an an egalitarian uh political economy an anti-financialized political economy that that's to me that's very formulaic and abstract but it's it's, it's what the left has to that's, do. That's, what a, that's the only thing that would deserve the name of left, in my opinion. Right.
3: Mm-hmm. Great. Wonderful. <laughs> um.
1: Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.
3: Please, can you ask questions? I'm going to favor people at the back who've had who've, who've, who've a hard time listening. And also, can I say that if you could make your question not longer than, say, three sentences, But it must end with a question mark. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Okay. Anyone who's first? Two women at the back there, please. And then a gentleman at the back, too. Um,
0: Yeah, I want to go back to what you were saying about capitalism as something bigger than an economy, something that encapsulates much more than just economic relations. It's something I've thought about quite a lot. And uh, I'm an academic and I'm also an activist and I've thought a lot about how to... Uh, crush and overcome this kind of particular form of, of society or whatever economy, whatever capitalism is, and I think that there 's a lot to gain from that sort of broader analysis. We can see connections between capitalism and other political forms, for example, but I wonder if there 's also something that we lose from that kind of an, kind of analysis, and I wanted to ask you to talk more about that so for so example, your
3: question, is it?
0: Yes. So do we lose anything in terms of yeah. the possibilities of overcoming capitalism when we perceive it as some kind of overarching system? Ah, right. Okay. I've got you. You've got that, Nancy. Yeah. Can we
3: take three questions before you okay. answer? Okay,
0: but I, I would... Uh, you want to
1: take Otherwise, I
4: would have to take a note. Let me, let me just... Okay, I, I'll try fine. to be very brief. Fine. I, I mean, I don't know about losing, but I, I think it hard, becomes harder... To overcome capitalism if you think of it in the way i'm talking about let's put it this way if you think it's only an economy then you might think it's sufficient to socialize the ownership of the means of production if you think it's about the relation of production and reproduction then you've got to think about reorganizing that relation as well if you think it's about it it, it's also about the relation to nature and about Uh, free riding and not paying the replacement costs of the exploitation of nature, then you've got to do something more than socializing the ownership. So it it is a bigger set of problems. It's about how to relate different aspects of life uh, while also yes, let's socialize the means of production too while we're at it, of course.
0: Yes. Okay. <laughs> so the second question there, yeah? Hi, thanks so much for the talk. It's really Can interesting. Can stand up louder? Because, yeah, sorry. Um, so I try to make my question brief, but basically it's on the rise of uh, artificial intelligence and what that means for labor, both in terms of product, like manufacturing is already transforming, like robots are doing that and will be doing that. So a lot of people who got those manufacturing jobs in the South are going to be jobless but also the rise of artificial intelligence to do uh, reproductive labor, like, for example, sex robots. Okay. For where example, is, what? Like, sex robots that are already existing. Sex and robots. And, mar- <laughs> and marketed. And, like, if that's, like, sort of, like, you know, an extending arc of exploitation where you're going to produce and exploit robots. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I can see the challenges in that, but what are the opportunities for us to, like, resist this extreme commodification because perhaps we'll have more free time i don't know yeah, i'm trying yeah, to think like what like what do you see developing in the future No, you want to
4: yeah but i'll say a little bit but i think you yeah. might be able to have
0: it. so i mean first of all this story about the,
4: the question of automation and and taking away jobs is 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 a very old story every sort of new technological breakthrough brings exactly this kind of, of worry and um Uh, So far, the system always finds ways of of employing people, uh, of course, as cheaply as possible and under, you know, with the least labor rights and so on and so forth, as they can get away with. So I don't, I mean, I I would want to separate the question of the technology itself from the question of its social organization, who controls it, who profits from it. Who decides how to use it and where and who's going to play what role? These are the important social and political questions. And I would say that the problem with capitalism as a form of social organization, that it completely removes all those questions from the collective self-determination of the people who have to live with the system. It just hands them off to, quote-unquote, market forces or... Uh, et cetera, et cetera. So, I mean, I, I don't, I, those are real questions. I mean, I'm not so interested in having sex with a robot. <laughs> Although, who knows, maybe. <laughs> um, but, but seriously, I mean, we should be able to decide these things and not uh, have them somehow foisted on us by these anonymous, impersonal forces. That- and
3: I, I just wanted to add that I think it's delusional all this talk about technology and robotification of everything. Because it assumes the infinite supply of resources, for, of nature's resources, for these things. I, I grew up in a small gold mining town in the Orange Free State in South Africa. And today there is no more gold. It's gone. It's been, it's been excavated, it's been taken, extracted, and it's no longer there. And, and this idea of limits and, and the finite nature of the rare earths, for example, that drive all our mobile phones... We, we ourselves enjoy that delusion that, that actually we can go on having smartphones uh, when actually those rare earths are very scarce. And I think that capitalism just cannot conceive of that fine, finitude, really. And, and, and that's where it's a problem. Now, there was a third question at the back.
1: Hi, thank you. Uh, uh, yeah, so uh, I'm part of a design program program. Uh, uh, grad I'm school. Sorry, can you can speak up? Oh yeah. So so I'm part of it, uh, a graduate design program, and one of the one of the things that I find um, missing sometimes is a kind of.
4: Could you speak in, directly
1: yeah, into the mic? So so one of the things I find missing in um, my experience with uh, design programs, being in graduate school, is a kind of understanding of the role that capitalism. Okay, uh, <laughs> of a kind of uh, you know one of the roles that capitalism can play in the decisions that designers can make when they join large tech companies. I mean, most of my friends work at Apple, Google, Facebook, Amazon. And one of the things that troubles me, and I'm, I'm curious as to the question, is, you know, what might be, in your opinion, more structural roles that designers can play from within these, you know, large corporations that are, you know, rebuilding society?
4: Yeah. This is a very interesting question because I teach at the New School for Social Research. I go to Parsons. You're from Parsons. Yep. Oh, okay. So oh, yeah. I was going to say, and, and so I, I have to, uh, students who are from design, sure. And um, this question about the the political economy of design and the constraints on it, and because a lot of the students, and I assume you're one of them, come with um, you know lots of sort of idealistic uh, ideas about you know how they can change city life for the better, and so on and so forth. And then, you know, the rubber hits the road and, you know, um, I, frankly, I mean, there, there are two different levels here. I mean, I, I hate to be sort of the bearer of bad news, but, you know, when you ask what can designers actually do individually in these organizations, I would, I don't know, maybe not a, a huge amount. Um, but, but on the other hand, if they organized, if they became politically active and thought about how to make political alliances with other forces that shared their concerns and be values, that would be a different story, yeah. yeah. Next question. Um, that, that young woman there. Okay.
3: Yeah. Yes. Thank you. Anne. Hi, um, I just had right a question about how you talked oh. about how
2: capitalism kind of reproduced... can yeah. speak right so, in. Oh, uh, okay. Oh, right. Um, really voice. Sorry, I've got a really quiet voice. <laughs> um, you talked about how capitalism reproduces itself, it kind of remorphs into different uh, reactions to its kind of, uh, you know, contradictions and everything. Um, do you think that citizenship has kind of responded and evolved alongside that as a kind of superstructure that reinforces that evolving base... Um, and have you do? Do you think that you, it would be fair to see sort of different manifestations of maybe citizenship from becoming a kind of prima facie right, maybe under state capitalism, to being a kind of contractualization, or it's kind of even sacralized, something that's um, you know earned and can be lost, or maybe dependent on certain characteristics like being a productive body. Or, um, do you think that you've seen that that shift in a kind of specific way? And and well, there's another. I'll, I'll leave that for that.
4: <laughs> yeah. So, that, so that's a really interesting uh, question because, um, I mean, it, I mean one thing that is, is extremely important is sort of how the the economic the demonism uh, and dynamism of the economic you know power of, of of accumulation is sort of tamed, organized, structured through a political order, and certainly um, the. Uh, expansion of citizenship to propertyless people, uh, the expansion of rights, as theorized, for example, by T.H. Marshall, from uh, legal and uh, civil rights to uh, political and social rights and so on. I mean, this uh, evolution, and and, and things can also go backwards, as I guess you're suggesting they have now, and I would agree. Devolution of citizenship is uh, important. Um, in relation to the, the changes that capitalism as a system undergoes, the relation between its economic dimension and its political dimension. The other thing about citizenship that's so important for us now is um, there's been, you know, we, we don't have colonies anymore. Everybody is supposed to have a state and be a citizen of something. But, I mean, look at the vast differences in terms of what that actually conveys in terms of rights and benefits. I mean, if, if you're talking about, you know, uh, South Sudan or, or whatever, what, what are you really talking about? Um, so this question of migration, of refugees, of asylum, the, you the, know, the, 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 you know, the The whole question of nationalism and territorial state borders with respect to citizenship at a time when capital, in contrast, is free to go just anywhere at the drop of a hat in a second flat. This is also a big change in the relation between the political and the economic in this financialized capitalism.
3: Yeah. Yeah.
2: Um, so I find your analysis of the crisis of care at the heart of capitalism very compelling. But it, is, it makes me wonder immediately what arrangement of social reproduction would be truly left and egalitarian. So my question is, what should the left be pushing for when it comes to social reproduction? So
3: did everyone hear that question? Did you hear it at the back? Repeated. Oh, good. Right. It's a great question. Sounds much better all right. Really? Oh, I see. Okay.
4: okay. So, uh, so what should the left uh, be pushing uh, for? How to think about uh, social reproduction? So, I mean, it's much easier to say what the limits of certain obvious possibilities are than to say what are the really good ones. <laughs> okay. So, you know, one idea is that yeah, men should do it too. It's a, it's actually simple, but. You know, it's yeah. elegant, simple, and elegant, and <laughs> important. Uh, but how um, it, it, do you uh, try to sort of keep everything else more or less the way it is, and then put moral pressure on on them? No, it doesn't. It doesn't work. Believe me, I've tried. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, um, so then you have all these um, schemes like the Scandinavians. Uh, were quite advanced in this uh, issue. And all kinds of um, very generous parental uh, leave and other kinds of uh, uh, primary caregiving needs for caring for aging parents and and so on and so forth. And then uh, they saw that it was really uh, women overwhelmingly who were taking them. then they uh, said, oh, well, we can fix that. Let's uh, have a use it or lose it idea that if the men don't you know, uh, lose it, they use it, they lose it, and they put various incentives to get men to take some of those leaves and do it. That actually produced some better results, but still very far from. I mean, one problem is that um, because of their um, advantages in the labor market, men tend to earn more, and uh, it from a strictly economic point of view, made more sense for them to keep working and for the women to take the lead. So, in other words, what you see is that all these things are completely interconnected, and you can't change reproduction without changing production. You can't change the family without changing the economy and the state. Uh, And um, I can't give you a positive answer except revolution. I mean, you know... (laughs) I mean, I I like, for myself, but not everyone is going to agree about this. This all has to be argued out. I really like the idea of a more collective or communal way of dealing with housework, with familial responsibilities. For some people, that really probably isn't so appealing. Uh, And, you know, I think that I'd like to see... um, I'm not categorically against paying people to do care work but at the right salary, with the right dignity, with all the labor rights and and so on and so forth. Um, But I don't want to see it, I'm not either for just like wages for housework as the solution to everything. Yeah. So.
3: Right. Any more questions? A woman here and a woman there and then you, right? So I puzzle how the others can hear you, that, but let's is go. Gonna, is it working?
2: Okay. Um, I was wondering if you could talk a bit more about why it was the case um, that kind of critical theory or political philosophy in general moved away from serious critique into sort of uh, yeah. yeah, Kantian silliness right. or post-structural silliness or you know. why it
3: was. Yeah. Why
4: did critical theory move away from yeah. uh, the critique of political? You know. I think it, uh, almost everyone did. So, it, I mean, the, the, no, criti- there might be a special story about critical theory, but this is a bigger, larger uh, phenomenon. And, um, I mean, I, I think you could maybe say that at the outset, many people thought that they were really sort of expanding the realm of, of of social life that could be and should be subject to critique. The family, personal life, sexuality uh I mean, of course these things needed to be talked about. And then you had all this very interesting stuff by people like Foucault about and and the New Left, for example, about how, you know, discipline in social welfare institutions, and so on and so forth. I think people thought they were adding something to the critique of political economy. Um, But somehow, um, what was supposed to be an addition ended up as a substitution, I guess we'll, historians will have to figure out why at some point. But what I do know is that the timing of this was disastrous because the substitution happened just as this process of neoliberalization was underway. And you had, you know, lots of people in the Mount Kelerin Society and around James Buchanan. And, and so, I mean, these people were actually plotting how to do this, at the same time that what should have been the left was worrying about whether it was essentialist to use the category women. Yeah, okay. In a nutshell.
3: So I, I mean, can I say that I think there's a, there was a conspiracy as well in my view. I mean, I think capitalism decided that actually making itself intangible and, and maybe it's not as conscious as that, but this intangible stuff, but also secretive. I mean, the Mont Pelerin Society, Buchanan, hardly anyone here, by the way, knows about Buchanan, you know, and, and he's very... So important. L- yeah. uh, let's give a plug. Do you know
4: Nancy, um, um, Nancy McLean's new book? No. What's it um, called? Had... Any, does anyone know the title? Is it about Buchanan? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, no, it's about the Virginia School, about the, dis- the, pl- the plot... I sound like Philip Roth, The Plot to Destroy
3: Democracy. Well, this is what I think. There, there, it was mm. a plot because I don't yeah. think, you know, it, it wasn't an accident that, that critical theory or the left all were distracted into these tangible areas of, 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 of mm. academic and intellectual pursuit, while finance went away in an intangible way and expanded itself and did, you know, and markets became and remote and detached. And, I, this is, and it unreadful. seems to me criminal that that we did not, and we still do not see it. I, I get very frustrated with the left. The left wants to talk about, you know, big bad businesses like Apple and um, uh, Amazon Instant. and all of that. And, and they are big and they are bad. But actually, there are bigger businesses out there which you do not see <laughs> and which you don't ever encounter and which actually are dictating governance across the world. So so it's, it's, it was, I mean, I think it was not an accident that that happened, but I think it was a weakness on the part of the left, not by the left here, I yeah, mean yeah, something I of those radical, um, not seeing that and not exploring that, and, and it continues to this day. I think I will go crazy if I hear another Marxist tell me that the crisis was caused by the cl- declining rate of profit. And, um, and I've heard that over and over again. And, you know, the fact of the matter is that it, it's been discussed as if the declining rate of profits of industrial companies caused the, the global financial crisis. And it's as if they're determined not to see what is going on out there. Anyway, that's my rant on that point. So. <laughs> you, you're talking about companies like BlackRock and Blackstone. I am who, indeed. Who, who operate maybe in collusion on the dark very side clo- very very <laughs> close collusion with the state and with central banks yeah
0: there was another question there yes yes i'm curious what your thoughts are on i am curious what your thoughts are on universal basic income ah. in the context of capitalism yeah. do you think it's something that might lead to a transformative solution yeah. um, maybe a challenge to capitalism or do yeah. you think it's something that might encourage the status quo in right. this respect right right that's a,
4: an interesting question, and it's uh, there's been a lot of, of rather um, thoughtful debate on both sides. Um, and my view is that everything depends on the context, because in theory, um, it looks like the sort of thing that Andre Gortz would have called a non-reformist reform, a, a reform that, that is saying uh, within capitalism that we guarantee everyone uh, at, at least... Um, Well, it depends how minimal, but at least a basic, uh, survival, which means you don't, you have the ability to withhold your labor power. You don't, you're not forced to work. That's supposed to mean that you're empowered vis-a-vis capital to demand better terms and so on and so forth. The problem is that, um, in practice, It has often turned out to be a way of subsidizing low-wage labor, of subsidizing capital. It permits them to pay lower wages because people then get. So I think partly, and also, do you know that the most um, famous, uh, one of the early and most famous philosophical defenses of UBI was this famous article by uh, Philippe Van Parish, Why Surfers Should Be Fed. That's a great title. However, um, while the surfers are out being fed, who is cooking for them? Yeah. This does absolutely nothing to deal with the gender division of labor. Just that very image of who the recipient was going to be is is quite interesting. And um, I think it depends upon, I wouldn't say that UBI could never. Have some transformative effects. But it really depends on the other, uh, the whole policy framework in which it's embedded. What kinds of labor regulations and minimum wage laws there are, how generous it is, of course, what are the um, uh, social reproductive, uh, uh, social service supports, and so on and so forth. It
3: really depends, yeah. So we had one more question, which was yours, and I think it may have to be the last one, David. Is that right? It's five past eight. eight yeah? Uh, or no, there will have to be two because okay. I promised this gentleman
0: here. Okay. But, okay. This gentleman, yes. Thanks. Um, so was just hopefully a quick one, um, which is um, how do you think um, state governance structures would need to change to accommodate for a kind of sort of capitalism that incorporates ecological and uh, social systems as well, or are they not the right? Is that not the right place to look for that sort of change?
4: Well, I think the first thing to say is that climate change is a truly global problem. There's there's no solution in one country, to use a famous phrase, and um, so um, it, it it involves, uh, by definition, um, some globally ap- applicable policies. Whether we're talking about a carbon tax or you know just jailing corporate megalith polluters. Uh, you, you know, there have to be, in the end, some, a, a, a global governance regime to deal with that. Um, and, um, I mean, that, that's one aspect of it. But there also has to be, as I was sort of saying before, um, you know, a great deal of democratic planning. Um, planning has gotten a bad word because of, yeah. you know, uh, communism. But it's absolutely essential for many things. And I don't think it means that you uh, completely get rid of markets, for example. I mean, they're all, I, I would defend some version of market socialism with a lot of planning. The key question is uh, democratic planning. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we've had some interesting experiences like the... I mean, it's not, none of them turned out exactly the way you wanted, but Nevertheless, I, interesting things like participatory budgeting in Brazil. Why not participatory carbon budgeting, participatory uh, planning of, uh, you know, uh, how to relate to nature?
3: I think we're going to have to stop there. You're, you're going to have an opportunity. Here is the book, and it's for sale here, and there are plenty of copies. Nancy's around uh, to talk to, uh, if, you want, if you want to speak to her directly afterwards. And thank you very much for all participating, and especially thank you tonight. Thank you. you.
2: Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.